1: We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're chatting with Stephen Karam. He is the Tony Award-winning author of The Humans, Sons of the Prophet, and Speech and Debate. For his work, he's received two Drama Critic Circle Awards, an Obie Award, and a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist.
1: Stephen wrote, a film adaptation of Chekhov's The Seagull and his adep- sorry and his adaptation of Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard premiered on Broadway as part of Roundabout's 2016 season. Stephen is joining us to
0: talk about his featured directorial debut of The Humans and how he adapted his own material for the screen. Thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Welcome.
2: Thank you guys. Thanks for having me.
1: So uh, before we get into it, we like to talk about our weeks, or what we call Adventures in Screenwriting. All right, Lorian. Uh, My challenge this week is to keep it brief, so here I go. Um, I even wrote it here, keep it brief. Um, So uh, this week, I've been working on this horror project I've been talking about, and I delivered it. Um, And of course, right after I delivered it, you know, I felt so good about it, I'm so proud of it, and then after I pressed you know, send, and I got a drink of water. I was like, oh my God, it's crap. It's garbage. What's wrong with me? I don't know what I'm doing. And I texted Meg and she was like, it's part of the process. Go work on something else. So that was good. But what I really wanted to talk about this week was in writing that horror piece and I've never written horror before, and I've seen it. And of course I did my research and I watched some horror. I'm still a little scared, but, um, you know, I don't know that genre from the inside writing it. So I sort of had permission to play and have fun in it. Cause I don't know the rules of that genre and I respect them. And I know that that is a whole other craft writing horror, but I felt like I had so much fun writing it. And I, and I was trying to figure out later, like why it can't just be because I haven't written horror before. And I, and I, and I had this in another project as well. I've been trying to find the tone of it and really, really working hard. It felt really hard. What should this be? What should this be? And then someone I'm working with on the project said, well, what do you like? And I was like, oh, what do I like? And so I started thinking about movies I like and TV shows and what is it I like about them? And then this sort of joy came across me again. Like, oh, this is fun. This is the fun part. This is the discovery part. How does what I like match this project? So it's not what should it be, it's what do I like, right? Which is such a different question, right? And I think when I'm writing, a lot of times I get caught in the, what does this need to be? What does it have to be? What should it be? And that piece of, I have to make a choice here. What if I make the wrong choice? We talk about this a lot on the show, like the barf draft, or just make a choice, or go down the cul-de-sac and come back and play. And I agree with it. I don't think I have felt it in so long, though. So it was such a fun discovery of, oh, I can have this like sense of abandon and play and joy in what I'm doing. And it doesn't mean I don't still stick to structure and character and, you know, tight expositional dialogue and all the craft pieces I know, but I don't know, it was just something really freeing and I just feel so good about it. You know, of course, I'm still awesome. waiting for notes on the script and I still have due dates and the pressure of life and I'm doing all my financials this week, you know, so yay. But I don't know. It was really exciting That's as a writer. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. even how was your week?
2: Uh, my week was pretty good. It's, it's, I actually, I love hearing you talk about horror and your experience with it because having just launched something that I feel like I'm not surprised people are talking about um the way the, the humans, the, the film that I wrote and directed is sort of a collision of a, a, a horror movie and a family drama. But I think it's kind of great that you both, that you weren't super familiar with the rules because I am a fan of the genre and I do know the rules really well. And I found myself having to work hard to work up the fortitude to do what I really wanted to do, like back to your question about what do you like? Well, what I really felt like was the right thing to do were to put you know, kind of classic jump scares into a family drama, even though that's not a thing, technically that's not a thing you can do. You have to be one or the other, or if you want serious character development um, or the kind that people expect from an emotional drama or comedy, you know how do those two things run up against each other? So uh, I don't know. I applaud you for, for running towards what you what you love because I feel like you never go wrong there. Um, but my week was my week has been been pretty good. It's been the uh, you guys probably know it's like when something's out in the world. It's like trying to. It's been a week of uh, doing some press, but also trying to just get back to where I'm happiest, which is working on the the next thing um I've never had an office before I've had a day I've worked in offices for so long that I never wanted one so I'm for the first time in my life have a closet sized tiny little space um and that's been sort of fun to uh you know uh to build that out that little room mm. um and mostly just uh the excitement of um just dreaming again and, and being reminded of how hilariously hard it is. And yeah, the things that I did, write, you know, you look at the next day, and you're like, Oh, I thought that was going to be amazing. And, um, but I, I actually love that space. I've been away from it for for way too long. So I'm happy to be back there.
1: Awesome. In your new office. Congratulations.
2: (laughs) Thank you. I think if you saw, if we could cut to a photo of it, you wouldn't be congratulating me, but it's more of a, it's more of an emotional milestone.
0: I love that you're on an Academy run with this movie and, and we're like, congratulations on your new office. That's what we want to talk about.
2: I feel like that's what the people want. Nobody wants to. Nobody wants to hear about four-year consideration. I feel like <laughs> let's make this about the, the what the people want, which is, is which is uh, which is like, yeah, like how do you you know, I've been asking that of people for years because I I was working for people for so long in an office situation as an assistant that it never really occurred to me that writing was something I would ever do in a situation like where a space was reserved just for me, because if you grow accustomed to doing it at anywhere, coffee shop, uh, your couch, your bedroom, any surface, mm-hmm. airport, um, you almost underestimate maybe the value of what a, you know, what, what it means to you. Because I think it's, you, I mean, you guys probably, I don't know if you both have the same relationship, but it's uh, those spaces are different for everybody. Not everybody yeah. has the same, you know.
1: Yeah. Some Mine's people amazing. need a
2: lot of people walking by.
1: Yeah.
0: A
2: window and distractions or they, you know, so and some people need a library.
0: You've written these plays like in coffee shops?
2: Oh yeah yeah
0: i hope that inspires everyone you can do it anywhere Pulitzer (laughs) Prize nominated work in a coffee shop people like if you can't there's no excuses
2: (laughs) well it's just like you do you do what you have to do and and yeah and then a lot of writing from from home situations where home was not ideal like there was no ability to delineate um an office space which for Mm -hmm. new yorkers is i think is very common for any uh new york writers out there starting out you know what i'm talking about it's like yeah you're lucky if you can get like, you know, um, if you have a win- <laughs> if you have a window ledge that you can put your laptop on. <laughs> that's your desk.
1: Yeah, I think too. That's I think people are feeling that you know the pandemic lockdown. You know, during I I just built out my basement, which was fine. Like I got a rug and a bookshelf, so it actually feels more like a safe place rather than a place I'm banished to. In you a know, dungeon. <laughs> in a dungeon. Yeah. Um, so I hear you. Yeah. But it does feel really special to have a designated space. Like I can close the door, you know, like that, that feels special. Yeah. I, of yeah. course.
0: I have an office that I run out of mostly. Most of my shit, I got to do work. So I'm really hungry. <laughs> I need a cookie right now. <laughs> I got to go. Okay. Every time it gets, it works the opposite way too. But uh, yeah. my week was, um, uh, you know, when you're doing big movies, and uh, you talk a lot about it, and you talk a lot about the outline, and you write outlines, and you write cards, and you have lots of conversations, and get approvals for things, and then you start writing it, and maybe even write almost the whole thing. And then you go, huh, yeah, no, I'm not sure this works, shit. <laughs> Like, it's kind of one of those moments where you're like, oh, I don't even know if I could tell anybody. Like, I don't even know if I can, and I guess I am telling them right now, but I don't even know if they listen. But like suddenly you're, and by the way, it might work. It's just one of the moments where you're like, I don't know if this is working. There's something, and maybe it's going to be a relatively small thing to change in act one that suddenly everything works, or, or maybe it's going to be larger (laughs) and uh, you know, there's a sense of pressure of it's due or, you know, like, you know, people are waiting for pages and it's like, are you gonna say anything? Are you just gonna, am I just gonna, are we just gonna change it all? No, we can't change it all. So uh, it's one of those weeks. I'm feeling a little bit of pressure on my head uh, at the moment, but uh, it's lovely to step away from that pressure uh, and be able to talk uh, with Stephen about creativity and craft. So I would rather just do that, quite honestly, than talk about my week. Um, <laughs> so let's get into it. Uh, go ahead, Lorraine. You wanted to ask the first question, so let's Yeah, go.
1: so I had a chance to see the play, or the the movie, where you were, and there was a really lovely Q&A, and we got to chat after. And then I also read the play, so I have a lot of questions about that, like moving like experience writing the play and then moving hmm. into the film part, um, but before that, I I'm so curious. Can you talk a little bit about how you started writing?
2: Oh, uh, like origin, origin, like way back yeah. to. Oh yeah, I, I think the the most honest answer was uh, before I even really understood the industry or even really the how big the world of cinema and theater was or what it encompassed. I just, as a kid, my sister was in a, a middle school production of little shop of horrors and my uh, family, uh, my, what was, I don't know whether it was, my dad or my mom, but brought home the VHS because uh, my sister Kristen was in it of the Frank Oz movie. And I must've been in first grade, like, uh, and I just was, I just fell madly in love with it Um, and started to seek out uh, more. So it is interesting that it's an adaptation of a, of a theater.
1: Yeah. And I was going to say, you fell in love with theater by watching it on VHS.
2: (laughs) By watching it on, so this actually, making the humans actually had real uh, emotional resonance for me, just because I know how the, Um, for so many people due to access, or maybe you live in a community where you don't um, have a high quality regional theater, where how it, you always think it has to go in one direction, you know, from Broadway to the, but, but it is interesting how people can discover a play from, um, or the the genre of theater itself from, Mm -hmm. a, and so in my case, I was kind of like, what are these worlds? Um, uh, And that just started like a a lot of library screen public library uh, taking out scripts. I just remember like there was a very limited amount of plays, uh, scripts that they had, and sometimes they would have screenplays. And so like, like uh, from like uh, the plays we read in elementary and middle school to getting more access with my AOL dial up, like ordering my first, plays and getting screenwriting books from the drama bookshop. I just loved reading scripts. And so there was something about even the reading experience that I really loved. So I didn't have access to a ton of uh, theater growing up, but I just started to imitate like the things that I loved. And so it wasn't a big, crazy um, conscious effort. It was more just like writing skits and scenes because I just, the effect that so many of uh, uh, movies and plays had on me, I would just start to imitate. They made me feel so much that I started to write, you know, really terrible, um, appropriately terrible plays. Yes. Um, about like a child who was abandoned by their mother, and you know every every. <laughs> that was when you
1: read a little Sam Shepard, and then you're like, "I'm going to do that." And I wrote like
2: everybody that I read. I wrote like every single writer that I discovered. I would write something that sounded exactly like that writer, and mm-hmm.
0: that's classic. That's and that's how painters used to learn how to paint. They would first paint like all mm-hmm. the masters. That's mm-hmm. classic. Yeah, yeah. I,
2: I wrote this play called Agnes, and uh, there was it was a. I think I had read the glass menagerie. And so <laughs> I think it's, there's like a variation on blow your candles out, Laura, at the end. I think it's just like, and so good night. And he turns off a flashlight instead oh, of I blowing up <laughs> like now it's like, it's very clear what the, um, so yeah, that, that it started from just love and imitation and wanting to be a part of something I really didn't understand. And, and there's something like looking back, I think I'm very grateful for like the lack of, there's no artists in my family. So I I wasn't getting early encouragement about like, you can pursue this and here's the five steps to being a better, like, I really was the slow burn into, could this be a path? Um, And I feel like, I, I don't think there are benefits to any specific direction, but I would say the benefit for me personally was like, maybe very early on, as my voice did get better, I was writing original material. Like it didn't, I felt like I, I probably lacked the skills. Um, I lacked a lot of adaptation skills, to be totally honest. And so what I found myself doing was like really drawing from, um, I was writing for myself. Like I wasn't writing to, uh, my early plays were not to pitch to anybody. I was basically like, well, no one will do this you know, my big break was a play about three teenagers in Salem, Oregon um, called Speech and Debate and A Sex Scandal. And, you know, it's a very messy play, but it's like very appropriately like where I was at at that time and a lot of fun. And and uh, sometimes I go back to it, not for craft because it's 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 a beautiful hot mess of a debut. Like it, it did really well. It launched my off-Broadway career and I'm super proud of it. It's still done today, but it's like, I don't know if you guys have those first scripts where you the thing to take away is almost how, even though you were, it, it was a hot mess, it's also so free. And mm-hmm. so like, you didn't know what you were doing in all these obvious ways, but you also really were not in your head mm-hmm. about pleasing. Right. Um, you were really trying to communicate something with a kind of sense of urgency. And so, sometimes it's like a fun reminder of like, remember how you just weren't concerned? You just did that. Like, you know, you just... So
0: great! And were you? And so you said you were an assistant. What were you doing as an assistant?
2: So I had a variety of temp jobs. Uh, uh, I was an editorial assistant for a year uh, at Simon and Schuster. But I was a temp paralegal for three years, and then for seven years, I was a legal assistant, essentially an assistant to five lawyers at a law firm um, here in New York City, a business law firm.
0: and was that a job that allowed you to write? Meaning a lot of people come to LA and they, they go and work like at an agency. And I'm always like, you know, the problem with that is there's no time to it's write. Like you are just drained and dead. And like, and again, I'm not saying don't do it, but you, you know, it's a harder thing to do. I think how was it working? I know this is such a crazy question, but people, I just want people to know what was it something that you could go home and write? Did it allow you to do that?
2: Yeah. Meg, I think this is like the best question because I feel like I tell this to my students every year, not as a lesson that they necessarily need to learn, but no one really told me that this was even an option. I thought, I I similarly thought like, should I be getting a job at a literary agency or, um, but I, I had worked for almost a year as an editorial assistant. And to your point, I had no headspace. I was reading book manuscripts. I was, And so it was very stimulating work. It was over 60 hours a week. And I had no, I, it was, it was literally a year where I did no writing. I learned a lot. Um, it was great to have work experience, but I, I had no energy to write. And I had to piece it together myself. Cause I was like, is this embarrassing? And uh, I don't know, but you just, eventually I was just able to figure out that I, uh, I found this job where I could get my health benefits and, and salary not from the WGA, but through this law firm where um, I had the good fortune of being able to set up an arrangement where I worked 30 hours a week, but three 10 hour days. So eventually I was able to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 8.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. Long days, not easy, but then I had Thursday through Sunday. Uh, And to answer your question, yes, that was the thing that suddenly I started to create original material. And I think it's different for everybody, you know, maybe some people want the stimulation of proximity to the thing they want to do. And for me, it was the total opposite. I wanted to leave the office and not care a thing about the job that I just left, like not, I had responsibility, but the way an assistant, you know, I made the coffee in the morning. I fixed yeah, the paper jams. Yeah, you could leave jams. the
0: job. You didn't have to think about it or worry about it. And how did you, what was the discipline yeah. that you gave yourself to write? Cause that's the other question. We get a lot, which is even if I find the time, they just, you know, I'm not yeah. doing it.
2: I don't know that I'm a great one to, to tell anyone about discipline because for me, my memory is that it was just the love of, of like, I really did want to write and see if I could potentially break through and ever get a production of something I wrote. And so the urgency for me was like probably just tied to also working 30 hours a week at a law firm where something would give eventually. And maybe that's also why I divorced myself early on is the editorial assistant work was really interesting. And if I started to have no time to write and fail as a writer, I could see myself maybe going, well, maybe I'll become an associate editor. Maybe I'll try to, even though my heart wasn't in it, those are actually amazing jobs. It's just my heart wasn't in it. Um, And having the divorce made me realize, like, uh, okay, you're really going for it. And so it made the free time feel much easier to dive in and try to actually write scripts um, at the time it was plays so that uh, I'd actually have the answer to that question.
1: How long were you working at that law firm before you got that uh, first production, that break?
2: I... I'm trying to think. So I had, uh, I co-wrote a play that was off-Broadway at New York Theatre Workshop when I was 25, and it was right when I started this job. And then my big, big break, the Speech and Debate, my solo debut, was I was 27, and I kept the job, because off-Broadway doesn't pay a lot. I got my first screenwriting job, which we can talk about later. I learned a lot from that gig. It prepared me and is the reason why I wrote and directed The Humans. That's the preview of how it went for me. But Speech and Debate did get turned into a movie with the classic case of like learning valuable lessons, like someone can rewrite a third of it. Mm -hmm. It, You know, what what does it actually mean to sell the rights to your material? Um, Learned a lot of really valuable lessons on the job. Uh, boy, what was your question? I got, I'm sidelining myself. No,
1: no, no. You answered it, but I am curious. I mean, just to say it, we all have learned those lessons. We have all had experiences that we can tell as our cautionary tales, right? So like, just so everyone knows, like you will try to avoid those experiences and you will still learn them. You will still learn those lessons. I mean, unless
2: you are financing to the last dollar your own film and releasing it. Yeah. You, you probably, there's no way to not avoid. There's
1: still people you're going to encounter that may try to take advantage of you and you'll learn how to navigate the system and you know, how to advocate for yourself and get other people to advocate on your behalf. Yeah. There's just all the time lessons. I want to go back to what you'd mentioned about your first screenwriting gig.
2: Yeah. Tell us about that. You know, it's like I want to tell this story in the context of I wouldn't change anything, even though it's going to be in the context of telling a story where it sounds like I would change everything. But but you learn so much, you know, like what I just did with the humans, it feels so connected to these lessons. And you guys have probably learned them at various stages and moments. But uh, I uh, stayed at that law firm job, though, even opening until I opened the play after that. Because I was so worried that um, if screenwriting only meant having experiences like the one I'm about to talk about, you know, when I'd say that's the danger of learning your first lesson is if it's if your first experience happens in a way that makes you wonder, is this all there is? As opposed to seeing the array of experiences you'll have, you know, mm-hmm. and everything, all the gray area, all the highs, all the lows. Mm. You know, it can be it can be hard. And I didn't have mentorship. So if I had a, a podcast like this, I would have, you know, this it's incredible about your show. It's like people, uh, I just feel, feel like people have access now to these range of experiences. Um but anyway, I yeah, I I left after Sons of the Prophet and there was a review of the play in The New Yorker. And uh, my boss That's came really out cool. and said, Well, my boss came out and said, said, you know, is this you? And and basically he was like, what are you doing here? And I explained to him, like, and I only left because I I really had to. I didn't, um, I had two productions opening and I had to, I didn't have time, but I, I felt like it was, I was so scared to have to rely on jobs that might take me so far away from what I liked. You know, you keep talking about how hard it can be to just remind yourself, what do I like? It's kind of why we're all probably writing, like we have things that we really feel passionate about. Um, but anyway, so this play was essentially a, a play about censorship, teens, sex. And I eventually got in this situation where someone was like, I love it. It's a miracle. Every screenplay I've ever written, I've only written three. All of the movies got made, which I know is also a weird three for three. The low budget movie, um, and it just, it so happened that it ended up being one of those experiences where by the end, it was very clear that they wanted to take out the uncomfortable sexual situations. They kind of started to censor the comedy about <laughs> censorship in teens. That's what
1: we call irony.
2: And so it was ironic <laughs> and they made a gay, there's only three main characters. One of, there's two, two gay characters, one straight character, and one of the gay characters became straight. Um, because there was already one gay one. So there.
1: That's enough, right? You only have the one, yeah.
2: This was, to anyone listening going, how is this possible? This was like not terribly long ago, but it was 100% like 2008, 2009 when it was maybe being developed. So, um, but I learned a lot. I chose, I I think in hindsight, I'm mad at myself for not. I was so, it was my first job where someone was paying me to write. I joined the guild, it was very exciting. And it was so heartbreaking that I was, I was I, I didn't know what the right thing was to do. Do you walk away and say, I see what's happening, you know? And I didn't have the sophistication to say the best thing for me is to step away. And I'd say the only upside of that was I really did stay. I did get to go on set. I let the director, I mean, I didn't have any say in it, but I, ch- I chose to not, um, you know, uh, uh, take myself out of the picture so I could actually see how a film gets made and see if maybe I would learn something. And I think you do learn a lot, even when things, even, even when what you learn is, um, you know, maybe I do have instincts about filmmaking. Maybe I do know more about my own characters and work than executives will will tell me, and and. But also, like you know, there's a million things you're you're able to absorb just by watching a a, a film get put together. Um, and I, I can- said, I, but after that, I was like, maybe I'll never do this again. And and I said yes to the seagull only because I uh, am friends with the director, Michael Mayer, uh, and Annette Benning was attached. And I was like, well, I'll do literally anything for Annette. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what well, we all, yeah. How did you emotionally get to a place where? you know, you'd been kind of beaten up, right? Your, your characters was, were changed, you know, and you went, you did it and you decided to go on set and commit to it, but how did you do that emotionally?
2: Um, denial for a while. (laughs) Solid. Sort of like, sort of like, uh a a bit of denial you know I I think now I know how to deal with it really well and then I felt like I just didn't have the tools I really didn't and so I felt like I think I just felt really really sad about it and and no one I wasn't very good at reaching out to maybe resources or people who had more experience than me I think I felt a little humiliated by it and so I also felt scared to like maybe call someone who I'd met, who, who I knew had had a lot of experience and say, hey, this is happening. It feels really sad. It feels scary. Uh, should I just walk away and just, you know, watch it on Netflix like two years from now or, or, um, and, you know, the only thing that I did, I sort of made an executive decision to petition with the director for him to get writing credit. And I have to say, maybe this is props to our, our union. They rejected, even though I <laughs> co-signed the letter and a third of it had been changed, I still have sole writing credit. Um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if, if people have a fascination with writing credits, but that, that I found really amusing too, where I was like, oh, even if the writer's like,
0: no, even if you're like, could we please could you give please them de- the credit? <laughs> no. And,
2: and I, I'm fairly certain that the only time, the next time where I, I feel like I have written a third of something and I'm like, can someone give me credit? I will be, you know, denied. But, Correct. Um,
0: Correct. Yeah. But
2: yeah, how do you guys, I mean, I feel like- Well, it's
0: fascinating to me that- How do you um, deal with it? What's fascinating is, number one, I'm so glad like, your your view that if if our listeners get in that situation, please do reach out. Please do ask people,
2: 100. 10%. even
0: if you have to come to our Gmail and ask us, do please ask out, you're not alone. Don't Cause I do think that's a hard place to be that you're not, you're feeling like you can't reach out um, and that it's humiliating and starting to understand it's not humiliating, it's just the process. It's literally, it's sad and horrible but it is also the process that we can all get in. And yet yeah. I also see a theme in, in the humans of all of those characters so holding in their own humiliations or their own sorrows and not reaching out and connecting. You know, that, that, that inclination you had, wherever it came from, be it your brain chemistry or, or, or your childhood or who knows. And you and I grew up right next to each other. So I, I can guess where it's coming from um, in terms of the Midwest mentality, right? Of, uh, and I love the Midwest, so I had nothing against the Midwest, but there is, at least there used to be uh, back in the Buggy Whip days uh, when you were growing up there that you didn't do that um
3: so it's still it there, there by the way I'm fresh <laughs> out
0: and it's still there so I grew yeah. up in uh, I grew up in Warren Ohio right near Youngstown right near Scranton there was all steel town stuff
2: amazing
0: um so what do you feel like that is is this a theme in your work that you see I mean I don't
2: I don't trace the themes as well as I'm more interested to hear you trace them <laughs> trace them um Uh, I suppose. I mean, I I guess I could see that. I I just genuinely don't think about it that much. I feel like at the time it was also so tied to um, genuine uncertainty about would I be like blacklisted? Would I be if I if I complained like it wasn't about.
0: Right, right, right.
2: Will people think it's silly that I'm mad one of my gay characters is being turned straight? It was much more like is this how you never get allowed to mm-hmm. write a screenplay again? Right. I really, I, I mean, I was in my twenties and I really didn't know how right. uh, the industry worked or what, um, were, there, were there repercussions uh, uh, or was it just part of like, you know, part of it is just, you, you have to just smile and not speak your feelings as a screenwriter. Is that, is that part of what you have to learn to do?
0: Well, so this, I, is, this is what I use my manager for. Honestly, yes. it's almost every once a week. I'm like, okay, now this is the situation. Yeah. Is this? Um, am I in the right and the wrong? Is it good? Is it bad? Do, I say, Do yeah. I say anything?
2: But what I will say in terms of setting up future career moves and, and projects and the way I just even think about starting anything is it did sort of like make, make me think about um, just like the patterns of like, well, well, you know, um, you can't control everything, and you'll never be able to. And so, knowing that things Wait, can go what? off the rails, I know this I'm, is I news. Hate to, I hate to I'm upset. So it's like it's like given that anything can go off the rails in unexpected ways at any moment, um, what can you what can you choose? And and I've learned to just you know that's been really sort of freeing and and. Uh, there were moments during the project where I had this sort of sinking feeling and didn't know what to do with it. And now I feel like it's that sinking feeling is sort of a guide like, oh, this person um, doesn't want, doesn't see the story the way I do. This would probably be a bad partnership. Like everything that you think is special and great about the project seems to not be and I've learned that that feeling rarely it's, it, you don't usually convert people. Like people are pretty good at, you know, right. if they're telling you they want to lean into the comedy, they probably mean it. Um, and so, you, you know, uh, I'm not saying you can plan or prevent heartbreak, but it is interesting to see, like, I feel like I'm going forward. I'm, I'm like with, with the, the Seagull, even a project that I didn't foresee myself getting involved with, it was a really rewarding experience because I had such a good rapport with the director. I knew the director wasn't going to, um, uh, I just knew that our relationship would mean that even if he did, let's say he did want to fire me for another writer, that that would be a phone call. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. he'd, He'd be able to quite honestly sit down with me. Like when I think of what a version of that going off the rails would be, would be like, oh wow, he's really disappointed in my work. And he has to, as a friend, Um, And that risk felt like something I was uh, totally ready to handle. And it it ended up being another, uh, my first really good film experience in that I was on set and I was learning from uh, the director and the actors and, you know, got to even turn it into a kind of shadow filmmaking experience. Um,
0: And then you went to the humans. I loved, I just want to make sure we have a really a good long time to talk about this movie.
1: Yeah, um, I have in terms a, of
0: that adaptation, go ahead,
1: Laura. I have a question about that. So, um, you know, Chekhov is dead, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I really like adaptation, but I, you get to the for me, I get to a point where I have to imagine that the author is dead and will never read or know about my adaptation, right? Because you do need some freedom to change things. Um, so, in adapting your own play into a movie right? And the play is different than the movie in a lot of ways, right? Structurally, so many different ways, right? So how do you sort of kill the playwright so you can be the screenwriter?
3: Or do you think about it that way?
1: Maybe you don't think about it that way.
2: (laughs) Uh, I I, I, I think my approach was that. I didn't think about that consciously, but I actually found it really easy because I had also never directed before. And so having being in the driver's seat in so many ways weirdly made it very easy for me to feel like my source material was, was just a blueprint. Uh, Because I knew the soul and the blood and the guts of the story. I knew the the heart of it. I knew the core of it. So I wasn't ever going to go in search of that and do some crazy thing where it's like, what if the mom's, you know, a guy from mm-hmm. Cleveland, instead of a, like, I was never gonna fall into any trap of like, uh, what's working right now? Like, what's, what are people like in mystery? Maybe it'll, it'll be a mystery. Maybe something gets lost in the house and they go, you know. So, so it felt really easy to just, because I love the medium so much and I'm, I'm such a cinephile, it was basically just like, what actually is this as a movie? Like, and what does the genre do that no other genre can do? Because the play worked in such a specific, almost like um, uh, like exhibitionist fashion that was something you could only do in a theater where you're looking at everyone in every room all the time, that the only way to think of it as a film was to go, well, you, you can't, you literally can't capture what made it a play on film the way you would like, you know, a more traditional cross-faded drama, you could say, all right, we'll just go over the shoulder and get this scene, then we'll do this scene, then we'll film this dialogue. So I think there was something about what made it unique theatrically being impossible to capture um, was very freeing in just That's thinking true. about as a film.
0: That's really interesting. Two of our uh, listeners had a question about the dialogue adaptation specifically Carly and Ben you know, Carly was interested to just generally in the dialogue adaptation over to film. And Ben had an observation about he loved that in the film adaptation, lines that would ordinarily get big laughs in the theater were so, as Ben says, enveloped in intimacy of the film. He found it himself much more aware of the pain under the comedy. So I'd love to talk to you about that in terms of the dialogue and the shift that started to happen.
2: Yeah. I mean, the most noticeable thing was that a third of the dialogue sort of disappeared because so much in terms of uh, relationships, including like the humor and in certain moments, was just able to be teased out through behavior. Um, And again, that was something being my first time as a writer director, I, I felt like I was a bolder writer because I knew a, I knew a thing that would be very hard to explain would get pushed through. Um, or at least I would try to. We've talked a lot about derailing, but um, in this case, I really was given the keys to the car. I, basically, the the budget was kept. <laughs> the result of me getting the keys to the car was that the budget shrank tremendously, uh, and we had under thirty days. And but but what that did mean is that the risk was like okay but we want to see what you actually want to do here. so moments like like uh, a fake fireplace and beanie and steven beanie feldstein and steven Young's characters relating to each other and giving you a taste of their relationship less through exhibition uh, uh, exposition and dialogue but more through how they handle how they relate to this you know video projected fire um
0: I felt very clear place. to me I loved it so much. Sorry, well, there's two kinds of people.
2: There, there are, there are <laughs> t- turn it off and there are I celebrate your... And
0: I loved that it as, the, a, as, a, as a way to explain character and relationship. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you.
2: But, but you guys can probably relate to this. That's a kind of golden moment that I wouldn't be surprised if I wrote that in a script and sent it to a studio and I just found that the director X'd it out because it, it can get lost in translation really easy. Even if you sort of know you know, and we premiered it at the Toronto Film Festival and just uproarious laughter, you know, it's like the one time I got to see the movie with like, you know, 1500 seat theater. So uh, I think to Patrick's point, which is interesting about the intimacy, I'd say it also depends whether there's like 13 people sitting in the theater with you or, you know, comedy likes numbers. And so part of what made it feel so big on stage is if Jane Howdy shells at a crudité table, and there's a thousand people sitting in a theater, you get the benefit of even if you're sitting and smiling, if 200 other people chuckle out loud, you still feel the rise of that moment. And I feel like uh, having been to like 30 film festivals with the film, it's like you also experience that in when there's more than hundred people in a movie theater, it feels much funnier. And when it's you alone with your feelings. <laughs> and so many of those moments to, to that good observation, I think the funniest moments are funny and something else. And I think that's personal. I think to some people, you know, that's what makes the the film hard to categorize from some people is that um, you know, if you see your mom and Jane Howdy shell, a joke about. Weight Watchers or a moment is sometimes just, you can turn it to one mindset is like, that's just funny. And some people see the complicated, uh, funny sadness with somebody who's, um, you know, it's, to me, that's the comedy of, what would you call it? Of like, just like recognition or life, or like when it's comedy of recognition, it's not a joke line, but it's, oh, my aunt, my aunt's like that my dad's like that and so it's twofold it's like eye rolly it's funny and it's it makes you think about your you know the people in your own life maybe um and
0: now add on to that the the scared jumps which i literally watching the movie yelled out loud by myself in my room um so but now there's like another layer on there of the kind of i mean horror to me sometimes means like you know which that's not what's going on here no no um, but there is a creepiness. There's a, I don't know what the word is. Somebody help me. What's the I word? Dread, I feel, it's like, right? I feel dread, like dread.
2: Yeah. I feel like I feel like some people, depending on, I mean, it's what I love about the genre is is some people define horror by fear alone. Like, was I scared? It's not about gore. Like, gore is a category of horror. Um, some people like to discuss like, is it a psychological thrillers or are or you know, does something that conjures dread, put it in a psychological thriller mashup kind of, you know, I always thought of it as like a family thriller, but a super quiet one in that it just isn't interested in being categorized. So part of what I always knew is that it would fail in any genre. (laughs) It fails the tests in any genre, right? It's People go, oh, my God, I can't believe how funny it is. But then if you tell people it's funny and it's a comedy, it's a huge fail for a comedy because then people are like, oh, way too serious for comedy. You tell people it's a drama. People go, I can't believe how much I laughed. If you tell people it's a horror movie, they're like, I can't believe I went into this thinking it was a horror movie. It was just about people and their feelings. And if you tell people it's just about people and their feelings, I guarantee you people will be like why the hell is that the scariest movie I've ever seen? Why did I jump out of my seat five times? And so you just kind of grow to love the thing that you make and you let everybody else fight (laughs) over it. (laughs) I'm not a purist. So I think I love, I love when boundaries sort of, that's why I got so excited about hearing about your horror project is I think your project's going to probably benefit from you not being um, too rigorous about rules. And,
1: and it's an adaptation. <laughs> well, but but, like, but the I, author's dead, so I'm okay.
2: <laughs> but I think that's great. I think I think sometimes the lack of, you know, like I think those jump scares exist. Like Jane Howdy Shell is exploring. The, it was my naivete that allowed me to actually put in what other people were pointing out, were like that's a literal traditional jump scare that you literally directed and wrote. Whereas I was thinking, wouldn't it be great because you can control point of view in a movie, like you can on stage, if so much of the mother-daughter tension is what what I find to be like, like Beanie, the things that Beanie will say to her mom, the things that when really that to me emotionally, all those scenes are about two people who want to be closer to each other, want to be better seen for who they actually are. And they just keep missing. It's like wide right wide left. And it's also because they're so much like each other. Beanie's the classic 25 year old who, who has no clue how much she is like her mother. And so she hates her mother.
1: I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the part I found the scariest. That and, I find that
2: terrifying <laughs> too. and so my favorite jump scare that I wrote into the movie just came out of that playing with that idea of what are they actually scared about is this anxiety of not being able to see each other so jane's upstairs in the early on in the movie and playing with mirrors and reflection she sort of sees herself but doesn't know where this reflection is coming from and like a slit of mirror and she walks towards a closet door swings it open and the thing that scares her isn't like a rat or something scary on the other side it's her daughter it's like the the mirror goes away and her reflection turns into beanie who's just coming out of the bathroom And it's like one of the biggest, if you see in a movie theater with people, I mean, it gets actual like you're watching Halloween 4, which is, it's so fun, but it's also playing with the, like all my other favorite horror movies do. It's like the scares are coming also from this real emotional anxiety. Like, how do you play with, you know, the, the anxiety of your mother not seeing you or of like tiptoeing around the person whose house you're in and and feeling like you'll never be seen by them or you know wanting to be closer and missing each other well it's like mirrors it's so you know what's the thing that actually is scaring her the most what if we put beanie on the other side of like the door um i don't
1: know does that make any sense yes it's- it
0: does yes. it totally does and yeah if that's the one i scared that's the one i screamed at. and, and <laughs> i, think I when i clear. saw it
1: everyone got scared and then everyone laughed yeah yes, I yelled that's what i love laughed. about horror yeah, yeah.
2: I feel like people do that even in, in gory horror movies. And I love that feeling of like the, the adrenaline is released and you can't believe that you, you know, I I fell in love with like Wes Craven's reboot of, I guess it wasn't a reboot, but, but the scream franchise, which was playing with almost uh, uh, the movies that had come decades before. Um, And I remember laughing hysterically every time, you know, I jumped in a theater
1: now I'm thinking back at my script and I'm realizing I didn't do that. I just have this sustained like building.
2: <laughs> but that works too. I'm just saying, it gets, I think you I'm take like, it one more level. Hmm,
1: maybe I need to so like, jump uh, funny here's in my, Yeah.
2: Here's my advice about the horror genre. It's really that like, what's so awesome about it is you don't really have to go 10 layers deep if you don't want to, especially if it's pure genre, because like with a violin going something scary is around the corner. Like, you can literally tell an audience, I'm just so excited that someone's about to scare me and they'll be happy. But um, even with movies like, I don't know, Hereditary and this, this recent sort of, it feels like there's always an accompanying th- think piece about how this is really about like grief or uh, I don't forget what Hereditary was. Maybe it's the playing with the idea that you're, um, wasn't Tony Collect completely like uh, she cut her mother off, like that she's still going to turn into her mother, even if she, um, like the premise is like her mother's uh, uh, Is this a theme for
1: you? This having is a been theme a for you. Them. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, but I'm saying like, like Rosemary's yeah. Baby, why is yeah. why do people still return to that? Both as like a feminist kind of interesting rereading of, of like but all these themes and ideas. And it's because it actually explores them better than, it's a genre that can do that. That's why that movie is like still holds up. It's not because uh, I think Polanski was good at jump scares, but I don't think that's actually why that the least scary thing in Rosemary's Baby is that little puppet demon baby at the end. That is the actual least effective.
1: Yes, I watched that movie alone at night, which is like I would that's not possible for me. Right. Uh, 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 but that movie I found just fascinating, Rosemary's Baby, like really I, interesting. I, yeah. I love
0: what you're saying, because that means for all our horror writers out there, especially emerging ones, you should expect that your producer, or the executive are going to say, what is this about? That is still, that whole conversation is still going to happen.
1: You're not yeah. off the
0: hook of, of knowing the lava and what is this coming from and what pain is it coming from or what questions you have? Is it coming from? It's all still going to come up and and ask you. And Jeff, I think you had a question. That I want to make sure we get to your question too here.
3: You know, I, I'd love to ask, Stephen, I'm, I love your work. And I told you at our screening, like, I feel like the humans was like bread in a lab for me. Like I'm from the Midwest. I moved to a city. I love family dramedy with some style. Um, but I'd love to ask one thing I love about your work. is I feel like you tow the line between irony And like a little bit of loving snark, but like a really profound earnestness. And when you talk about these jump scares or the horror or even the comedy, it's all grounded in these really human. I mean, not to use the title of your movie, but um, like human recognizable things about family or love or relationships. And I don't know, I feel like a lot of writers who want to seem smart or write funny, they they're afraid of being earnest on the page. And I'm wondering if you could just speak to that a little bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, you guys have talked about this in different ways on the podcast. I guess like it can be so hard to just get back to what uh, is authentic for you. And so I feel like maybe this is a roundabout way of answering this, but, but I've always had a good inner compass about um, when I create something that feels honest to me. And that can, that can encompass things that are broad comedies. Um, you know, all the things I've written, I'd say the humans maybe fits most into that category in Sons of the Prophet, the, the kind of work you're describing. But even when it's I'm uh, pushing like different boundaries or extremes, like that word, like authenticity and honesty, it, it, it's pretty porous for me, but it's like, it's developing the part of you that knows like, yeah, this is, this is, this is right. Cause enough people, especially if it's not, um, just earnest and sincere and compelling, like they just mean different things to different people. So I, I almost feel like the big mistake is as a younger writer is trying to, or as brighter writer of any age, um, traps i fall into is trying to write with an aim to please people is how you almost like always ensure you won't please anyone or or maybe go in a direction where you're the intentions were to have a broader audience but you end up shrinking your audience um and and so i guess i just i i i i feel like i try to always come back to like what um you know do is the moment the sort of bread and butter and does it have the lava? Uh, Cause I, I love the word lava, maybe. but is the, the molten core of the thing, is it present in the scenes that, that I'm writing? And so a lot of it was really hard. Like I really thought when I was writing and originally back in the play, like this moment where Jane Howdy Shell just sits at a table talking about her week, her daughter literally just says, how, how you doing mom? And Jane has one of the longest monologues in the play, which is just her sitting at a table talking about who she knows that's sick, how she's volunteering, what's going on. And you chart this really slow trick, but it requires such trust in the audience and its intelligence that both on stage and on screen, it's, it's really hard to go to those places because... You're like, oh my god! I'm a screenwriter. I should be cutting really quick. Like I should be, it should be, this should be done in snappier jump cuts, or it, it should be her over. But somehow, I was like, even when I was translating it to film, I was like, the the weirder filmic version of this is that the camera's just locked on Jane, and so you don't even get to see the heads of the other characters around her. And I just think that stuff is not about. And I did that because I knew everyone would love it. I'm sure 20 people were like, this is crazy. Why aren't, why aren't you cutting to Amy Schumer's reaction? Why aren't you cutting to... And, but it is about, you end up making something that feels really genuine and true for you. And, and I always have that feeling when I'm watching writing or a film where I feel like the collaborators, enough of what the artists were really trying to do made it into the final product. And I always feel when something was written by committee, because you feel when someone something's written more by committee, but like a huge success where like the committee was trusted, (laughs) like the brains of the committee was still this really powerful, soulful force. And we all know the feeling where you're watching it and you're like, too many cooks you feel like the committee failed somehow or the committee hired another committee (laughs) and and four other committees came in and then they fired those four committees and three other committees came in. So that's a really long winded answer, but it's the only, but it's the only way I can maybe leave enough room for other people to go like, Oh, that's true. I do like these broad comedies, but I'm always still going after the, what feels really authentic and meaningful in those you know, in the slapstick. Um,
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Awesome. I love that.
0: What brings you the most joy in your writing? What brings you the most joy as a writer?
2: I feel like um, I am always happiest getting to uh, explore questions that I can't answer. Like returning to, returning not to things that I only know a lot about, but where my passion connects to also a lot of, a lot of um, unanswered questions. And I feel like it always gives a nice searching quality to the story and less like, here's a lesson I'm gonna teach you. It's more like, come on this journey with me. I love that. I, yeah. I like stories that have a searching quality. Um, yeah. What? Yeah, that's a happy place.
1: Yes. What pisses you off about writing?
2: Oh, um, uh, having to be (laughs) stationary, I wish, I wish I could be in motion on a bike and ride. (laughs) I feel like I'm somebody that has to shift positions so often that if you had like, it's, it's, it's pretty torturous for someone like me. Um, I'm not hyperactive. It's just, I, I have still not figured out like, oh, there's that great chair that I go to and I can sit there for hours. I, I'm still sort of like, what do I do with my body after 20 minutes?
1: Well, I tried to set up a tray attached to my exercise bike and it did not work. <laughs> I don't think that's gonna work.
2: You're saving I, me a lot of time and trouble. I like, if you have
1: I, a Peloton and you're trying and you see all those people writing while they have a tray there, it does not work it's a ter- it would kill your back i'm just saying but if you do find a solution to that let me know yeah please let us know <laughs> all right jeff last question
3: um in terms of your entire oeuvre steven like if there if you could be remembered for one scene what would that scene be that you've written obviously
2: mm-hmm. i think there's a the there's something really uh I feel like I'll go away from the humans just because I don't want to, uh, I don't want to reveal too much. And then people will go like, that's his favorite scene. And then people go watch it and be disappointed. But there's a final scene, the final scene of sons of the prophet is um, I'm, I'm proud of it for a bunch of reasons. It, it ends in a very beautiful sort of abstract way where I feel like in a lot of my work as two people are very much in a physical therapy room and end up sort of on what feels like maybe a higher plane, doing an ordinary thing, which is a series of nerve glides, these exercises with their hands. And it ends up looking like a beautiful, almost like a synchronized dance. And so I think of them being backled, and the beauty of that moment. Uh, But it also was a scene that people said you can't do it because it involved a new character that hadn't been introduced. And it was a huge moment in following gut level instincts, where I am somebody that loves craft and loves what I've learned from what I know about structure and storytelling and character development and arcs. And so I get very nervous when somebody, or in this case, a lot of people said, you can't have your final scene be, you can't introduce a new character in the final scene. Um, And I got that a lot. And it was a lesson in like uh, sticking to your guns. And also like that's just a scene that encompasses sort of like how you could very easily um, uh, get so wrapped up in what you know to be valuable about structure and precedent that you also come to believe it in an unhelpful way too much. You also stop listening on a more uh as just a person experiencing a story
3: wonderful good advice
1: great so good well thank you so much for coming in and on the show today and um good luck with your academy run and on your office congratulations yes congratulations (laughs) on all of it thank you so
0: much for being here and to our listeners please uh drop us a review come and find us on the facebook group because we really love talking
1: to you and remember thank you guys you are not alone Keep writing.
3: Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash the screenwriting life or email us at the screenwriting life at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it. And not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.